Well, we made it. The end of the 2020 season for the Baltimore Orioles. Certainly a fascinating and intriguing one. This is Inside the Yard. Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold. Quite a journey. And to finish off our regular season of this podcast in its first year, we have a very special guest, Jeff. Yeah, Orioles manager Brandon Hyde actually joined us right before the season concluded and talked with us about the the year as a whole and some of the different things that he saw throughout the year he also did our fun five questions we couldn't let him free without answering those and so we had a lot of fun with Brandon and he did a really good job in what was an incredibly difficult year which featured a lot of situations and a lot of different things that don't show up in the major league manager's handbook no question about it I was so impressed with Brandon every facet of his skills from strategy to keeping this team together and and honestly his coaching staff and the marked improvement we saw from so many young players. So let's get to it. Oriole skipper, Brandon Hyde. Joining us now on Inside the Yard is Orioles manager finishing up year number two as the bird skipper. Brandon Hyde is with us. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me on. Well, let's start with just the uh, deep breath you're probably going to take uh, when this thing officially wraps up and you get home, you see your family. What's the first thing you want to do? Um, yeah, I just see my family. It's been, I've seen them three days in the last three months. So I got an early morning flight on Monday, uh, get and get picked up by my wife, looking forward to seeing her and then driving. I'm probably going to surprise my kids at their school. Nice. So I can looking forward to that. Brandon, how much time do you take for yourself once the season ends, and then when do you start thinking about baseball again? I don't think I ever stop thinking about it, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, you know, when my kids go to school, and I, um, I, I think you try to decompress as much as you possibly can. I think this would be a season that you need to, um, following this year, for sure, um, just from everything we've gone through. But it never – you know, I talk to Mike almost every single day in the off season. There's all kinds of things that come up from a roster standpoint to, you know, I watched, you know, last year I watched the postseason. Unfortunately, we're not, we're not involved and, and it's a lot more fun when you are. Uh, But yeah, I do watch what's going on throughout the league and I'm interested in the postseason games and, and I, I never stop thinking about it. Now, are you someone who somewhere in November, December starts looking at, depth charts and, and even playing with lineups. How, what's your process in the off season as you kind of get away and then uh, kind of start thinking about it again? You know, it's a lot of 40 man roster discussions that we have. Uh, I'm fortunate that I'm included in those and, and Mike uh, keeps me informed of what's going on from our, from our roster situation and free agents and, Arbitrational, uh, arbitration eligible guys, all all the the, the DFA, the wi- the waiver wire, etc. Um, just from a roster construction standpoint, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to be involved in that as a manager and and uh, hear their thoughts and and uh, you know that happens right away. Uh, 
you know, I was in the front office for one year as the farm director back in 2013. And I really didn't know what the off season looks like from an office standpoint. And, uh, you know, the, there is no off season for the front office and it, it never, it actually goes by real fast. It never stops. You have constantly you have deadlines to, to, uh, for 40 man stuff. Uh, we have, there's all kinds of things that go on throughout the off season. So, um, you know, winter meetings, I don't know if that's going to happen this year, probably not, but those type of things go on. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's very, very interesting on, on, on building a roster and with a roster like ours, um, there's a lot of movement, obviously, and there's a, it's we're, when we're building and we're trying to improve our 40 man, and and uh, there's a lot of discussions that happen about that. What did you learn about yourself as a manager in the year 2020? Because there has never been a season like it before. Yeah, I think I talked more to our team about non-baseball things than I ever have before. Um, I, I've never, you know, this was the first year of Zoom. This was the first year of, you know, not being able to meet as a club uh, in a clubhouse and being creative with how you're going to communicate to your players, uh, not only when we were away during the summer, but then as we got back together and you just had to be creative in how you were going to communicate. Um, and we just talked about so many other issues besides baseball that, that I, I thought was enlightening. Um, I, it was really an interesting summer and that we there's a lot of things going on in our country that that we had people a lot of people that felt passionate about we felt passionate about and to hear um our players perspective perspective on those type of things um and to continue the conversations that when we when we did get together this summer in in baltimore uh, it was um it was unbelievable, and, and, and I'm fortunate that we have a really good coaching staff and, and a great group of players that care about each other and care about what goes on in the world, and, and uh, there's a lot, a lot of discussions about that this year. The timeline of the baseball season is always interesting. I mean, it really begins in winter time here on the East Coast, and then it ends. It's fall, uh, for all the obvious uh, cliches we know about baseball seasonally, but in this case, when you go back to when pitchers and catchers reported in 2020, it was literally almost a different planet. How long ago does that seem in your world, Brandon, thinking about uh, the team that gathered in Sarasota, the, the send home, waiting, hoping for baseball to return, and then coming back and everything that's happened since? Yeah, no doubt. It does seem a long time ago. There's, that's for sure. And um, when we talk about spring training, we always, have to, we always have to preface it with it spring training one or spring training two. Um, but there, you know, there was a lot of things, Yeah, it just does seem, there's been so much stuff that's happened since we, we broke in March, um, that it does seem like years ago when we met for the first time in the, in the beginning, beginning of February, um, so much has happened. Uh, but I feel, you know, we made it through, um, I feel really good about how we stayed together, um, not only as a club, but our, our organization. I'm really proud to be in this organization. Uh, I, I've, the leadership is, um, you know, from the senior leadership team to, to um, our owner, everybody has just been wonderful and supportive and um, big help in, into getting through this year. What did Brian Ebel and his staff mean to getting through it safely? I can only imagine how much of a task it, it had to have been to, to navigate 
all of this in a 60-game season, traveling to other cities and going through all the things that, that they needed to go through to keep everybody safe. But talk about the job that, that he and the rest of his medical staff did to, to keep everybody safe. Uh, tireless. And they are definitely the MVPs of our team. There's no doubt about it. And what the hours that trainers put in without what we went through this year is already mind boggling. Um, you know, they're on call in the middle of the night, every day, all every day, every night for all season long and into the off season, Brian Ebel into the off season for sure. And this year was probably times 10 of, of everything that they had to go through. Um, you know, just a constant, making sure the protocols were in place that we were doing our, we were following our own product protocols, but not only MLB setting the protocols, making sure that we're organized, seeing that the operation is being done correctly in Baltimore and in our secondary site, following through with players. Um, there was, there's so many things that happened every day that public, the public doesn't know. Um, and just being aware of, just being on top of it. I mean, and, and Brian and his group has just been on top of it since the middle of March and, and, and how we've dealt with this and made my job so much easier. And I know our players appreciate it also just because of the work, the tireless work that they, they have put in. Brandon, obviously there's some short and long-term decisions to be made on this roster. When you look at assessing a 60 game season, a two week slump over six months doesn't mean a whole lot. It's normal. It happens to every player, both, good and great uh, for this. It's just different. You know, how do you assess it? How do you look at it uh, when you're analyzing each player and some long-term decisions? Well, I think you do the best you can in, in evaluating. I think the, the biggest thing you can do as an organization is evaluate your own players correctly. And this year obviously is, is difficult, more difficult because of the, uh, you just don't have the, longevity of a season and really see a, a guy play for a while. So you have to make, you have to make correct decisions. You have to make the best decisions you, you possibly can. Um, but I do feel like we have a pretty good feel for our guys. And, and, you know, a lot of our guys played well for the first two thirds of the year. And, you know, we haven't played well for a couple of weeks now, and that's been disappointing in a lot of ways, but um, yeah, I think that once we, we, this ends on Sunday and, we sit back and we evaluate our players. I think that there are going to be good discussions and, and um, you know, hopefully we'll have an, enough, make, make the right decisions on guys and, and do our best to, to uh, continue to improve as, as an organization. You look back at when things were going really well, you had Anthony Santander performing at just a ridiculous level. Going into 2021, what excites you the most about him? Well, I think he's an impact middle of the order bat. And I think you take him out of our lineup. You know, he was in our lineup for the first half of the year. I think you, you can see that, how, how much it hurts. Um, and that, you know, he is just that, that he's that impactful to our offense. Um, and that he's a run producer. I, I was looking at the, I was voting for the silver slugger the other day. And I'm looking at outfield, the outfielders in the American league. And this guy is on the top of RBIs and OPS and everything, and he hasn't played in three weeks. And uh, that just shows you how much how much damage he did and how many runs he drove in. And we've had a tough time scoring runs lately, so that's been a huge uh, 
you know, hit that we had to take is, is losing him for the season. Um, you know, also with, with Iglesias hitting it, hitting behind him um, for a lot of that first two thirds of the year, that, w- that was a really nice one, two punch with, with two, you're, you're going to get eight professional at bats a night um, against good American League East pitching and Iggy not being able to go as much as, you know, he would like and, and having the, the quad since the first half of, or since the first series of the year, that's, that's hurt us also. So it's been, um, you know, it's been rough a little bit that without, without Tony, just because he is, he gives you four really good at bats. He's got a chance to go deep every single at bat. He's got a chance to drive the baseball. He's got a tr- chance to wear down a pitcher. Um, and he's played, and he played really solid defense too. So I'm a big Santander fan. I think he's got a huge upside and I love the makeup. I love how hard nosed he is. I love how he plays hard, plays hurt. And uh, looking forward to hopefully coaching him for a long time. Just generally on the young players who have come up this year and almost instantly perform the Mount Castles, the Aikens, the Kramers, just, we, I guess it, the book, we'll, we'll see what's written about them long-term, but just their ability to kind of jump right into it this year and perform right after being called up. What does it say about them? I think it says a lot about their, you know, their, their maturity. And I think that our organization did a nice job on the timing of their call up and that they, they really, um, you know, when they went down to our secondary site, put some things in place for, for how, um, for, you know, areas for improvement for both, for all three of those guys. And they put the work in. So credit to them for putting the work in credit to our coaches down there for, uh, helping them improve, um, but went down, went down to our secondary site and you know didn't hang their heads, but but I got after it and and you know came here and and I've just been so impressed with all three. This is not easy to do, and we're not facing pushovers night in night out. We're facing really good clubs. Uh, um, everybody except for the Red Sox that we we have faced is, is made a push to get to the postseason or in the postseason um, with postseason type rosters and for them to compete the way they have at a young age um, in a weird year and a short sample uh, has been very, very impressive. And it's, and it, um, you know, shows well for the future for, for these guys. I, I, I really, I think, I think Keegan and, and Dean are, are going to be rotation um, pieces. And I think Ryan's a middle of the order bat. And that's, that's just uh that's huge going into next year uh, thinking that, you know, if they came in and struggled, we, you know, we wouldn't, wouldn't have known. We have to kind of watch their spring training, et cetera. But um, it feels really good to know that these guys handled it the way they did up here. There were a lot of question marks coming into this year about a couple of the rotation spots. How excited are you going into next spring training, realizing that you've got a lot of guys in your starting rotation performing at a high level going into the end of the season? No doubt. Yeah. So you had Kramer, Aiken. Um, love what John Means has done to finish off the year. Looks like John Means from last year. Uh, picking up Georgie Lopez off a of waiver wire. I, I've been really impressed with Georgie um, and how he's throwing the baseball. Uh, you just don't see mid-90s, 6'5 starters on the waiver wire very often. And for us to be able to get him and, and make some improvements in his delivery, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in, I've been impressed. Um you know, and then you you got Zimmerman here now at a nice outing last night, um, with with some innings out of the bullpen showing good stuff. 
I, I, yeah, I think we have some, we have some nice rotation pieces that we're excited about and, and hopefully we have more coming. To, to what's coming, how closely both in season and in the off season, do you kind of catch up on reports, talk to the player development side, which you've obviously been a part of in your career and mm -hmm. really dive into uh, what might be to come both in 21 and beyond? Well, this year's different a little bit because we just have that buoy site, and I do talk to Buck and Gary a little bit, and I kind of knew what was, you know, I kind of knew the possibility of certain guys coming here, so I was following them closely. So when Dean and Keegan were were, were pitching, I'd always make sure I look at the box score. Uh, we have like a box score through our, I have an app that shows what what went on there uh, the day before, um, who hit, etc. So I'd always follow and look at their and look at their notes on how they did Mountcastle uh, the same way. But yeah, I'm interested in what goes on during the regular uh, during a normal season. Um, and probably one of the first things I do at night is I go and I look at the AAA and AA box scores, uh, and then I look forward to the game reports in the morning to see how how our guys did. Um, but so yeah, I'm very very aware of of what goes on, especially in in the upper upper uh, levels. Brandon, last one for me. When you're in the off season and you're not thinking about baseball, what are you doing to take some time and uh, enjoy yourself? Uh, I think the biggest thing is I uh, I just try to spend as much time with my kids as I can, just because I miss out on on um, you know, especially like these last two years being in Baltimore. Um, I just have missed out on so much. My my son's twelve. My my daughter's ten. Um, so my son plays every sport. My daughter horseback rides. I try to take them to school every day. Um, I try to pick them up from school every day. I try to take them to as many of their sporting events as possible, as much as they're off the, you know, off the field, um, out of school, um, um, you know, activities that they have. I just try to be there because I just miss out on so much. And I probably pack in too much stuff for them in the, in the winter just because I'm trying to catch up as much as I possibly can. Um, but, you know, before I was with the Cubs, I, I lived there. And, and um, with all the day games, I, I, there was a lot of evenings I could, I could watch stuff. And here it's, it's, it's different. I'm obviously away from them. And, and so I try to just catch up as much as I possibly can um, and, and watch their activities. Brandon, bear with us. We have our final thing. It's our fun five baseball questions. All of your players and prospects we've had on have done it, so don't be too afraid of this. Uh, let's get it rolling. There are five questions. First thing that comes to mind, uh, your favorite baseball movie? Natural. Ooh, good choice. What was your high school senior year batting average? I want to say it was like four, uh, somewhere between like 420 and 450. Yeah. Pretty good. Pretty Somewhere good recall, there. too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> most influential baseball person in your life? Uh, Joe Madden. Do you have any superstitions now or when you were a player? Um, you know what? I, I – a little bit. I mean, it's not, like, drastic. I do try to if – we, if we win, I try to – um, I try to wear like the same shoes. If we, you know, if I have a uniform top on, I'll, I'll put the uniform top on the next day. If we lose, I'll change that stuff up. Like things like that. I'll, 
it, it, whether we win or we lose, uh, I'll wear, um, well, if we win, I wear, usually try to wear the same stuff. And if we lose, I always switch things up. All right. And then whoever, takes the line, whoever takes the lineup card out to home plate, if we win, they, they continue to take it out. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a tough one for you. What was your favorite minor league city to either manage, coach, or play in? You know what? I like Greensboro, North Carolina quite a bit. I managed there for a couple years. I was a hitting coach there. Um, it's kind of a, it's a sneaky, really good city. I liked playing in Birmingham. Um, yeah, I'm going to go Greensboro. All right. That wasn't so bad, was it? No. <laughs> no, it's pretty easy. Pretty easy. Well, those are good answers. Brandon, hi. We appreciate so much. I know it's been a, a tough year in so many ways, but we appreciate uh, your accessibility all year and how you've treated us. So thank you so much. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me on. Well, the Orioles season in 2020 is history and in the books, but it was a fascinating season, at times a difficult season, and it certainly had its share of moments over 60 games. And joining us right now, someone who was all over it again, Rock Kubako of Masson, our colleague there. And first, Rock, congratulations on becoming a grandfather. And have you decided what you want your uh, granddaughter to call you one day? Is it pop, pop, pa, grandpa? What, what's the determination there? Papa Guns. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I keep telling people that, honestly, it's whatever she ends up calling me. I think you start out before she can speak saying grandpa. But, I mean, if she decides that whatever comes out, that's what it's going to be. My daughter calls my mom Meemaw, and nobody in our family has ever been Meemaw. That's what she started calling her. So she's Meemaw, and she still is. So I figure if whatever she ends up being able to pronounce and calling me, I will answer to it, but I am going to plant Papa Guns there to see if, if that sticks. <laughs> That's fantastic. And uh, congratulations to you and, and your you. entire family and your daughter. Uh, let's talk about this 2020 season. I really think based on what any expectations were reasonably that the Orioles surpassed it in competitiveness, uh, surpassed it in wins, and, and surpassed it in development when you look at who really moved the needle when it comes to Tanner Scott or Dylan Tate or Santander or certainly Ryan Mountcastle and some of the young pitchers we saw at the end come up. Uh, but what's your overall assessment of the big picture right now, Rock? Yeah, I mean, I respect the fact that Brandon Hyde was expressing his disappointment down the stretch at the way the team faltered. And I respect the fact that Michael Elias says, I can't consider a season a huge success when you have a losing record, don't make the playoffs. That said, everybody in the organization has to be really pleased. They were much more competitive than they were supposed to be. I mean, they were being predicted to win like 10 games, and they were going to be the worst team in baseball. And they were contending, and maybe this speaks a lot to a 2020 truncated season, but they were in contention until there were five games left. They were still mathematically in it. That is amazing. And the fact that I think there was a panic at first – that all these prospects weren't going to be able to be developed properly because there was no minor league season. And we were saying this hurts the Orioles more than a lot of teams because they're counting so much on the development and so much on the progress of these young players because they're not going to outspend other teams. They need to draft and develop and not having a minor league season, what kind of setbacks they're going to be. And instead, they did tremendous work at the Bowie site. And I know there's no way to replicate actual games, but 
the, the, the workouts, the inter-squad games and what they were doing there and the individualized one-on-one -on -one instruction that people like Ryan Malkhouse were getting, that ended up really being a, a huge gain for them. I, I think they really accomplished more than they even realized they were going to be able to do. So I think if you just look at it as a whole, staying competitive and being able to filter up prospects like Malcastle and Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer and Bruce Zimmerman to the majors and having other guys like Adley Rutschman getting all kinds of individualized instruction and being able to catch double A, triple A pitchers, which he wasn't going to do if he was assigned to Frederick to start the year. I think overall you have to say this was a success and Michael Ice achieved a goal of shedding some payroll with some of the deals he made at the deadline. He was able to move Michael Gibbons, which he wasn't able to do last uh, deadline, and Miguel Castro, and he was able to get back pieces. He got two players to be named later for Tommy Malone, a half-season rental. I mean, so I think there was success there where he was able to infuse more talent into the system, which is what he's trying to do. So if you step back as a whole and shed the you know, disappointment that fans are feeling over the fact that they ended up finishing was a 10 games below 500 and didn't make the playoffs and the collapse at the end. Step away from that a little bit. I have to think that 2020 ended up being much more successful than anybody could have imagined. When you look at this season as a whole, does it make you think that from a rebuilding standpoint, the Orioles are closer to becoming a team that's going to be competing in the American League East year in and year out? Or is 2020 just such a weird year you have to stick in a vacuum and then you need to maybe go into 2021 to kind of see where you are. Yeah. I mean, if we're back to normal next year and we're a long way from knowing if that's the case, but if we're back to 162 game season and not just regional travel and all the other things that are going to come back that weren't there this year, then it's, you know, it may be a little harder to envision this team still contending on September 5th or whatever next year, or when there are five games left, uh, in the season before you're eliminated. But I do think that maybe they're a little bit closer now than a lot of people realize to at least being more competitive and possibly contending because you do now, you, you, know, you can project Aiken and Kramer in that rotation next year. And John Means apparently it looks like he's fixed now that he figured it out and he can be a dominant number one type guy. And Mount Castle is going to hit in the middle of the order and he's going to play a, certainly an acceptable left field and you've got, again, if Austin Hayes can stay healthy for a full season, we don't know if he can do that. He's got to prove he can. But just, you know, you envision that outfield now and, and the depth they have in Santander, if he can give them a full year. And you're going to have other guys coming up. Usniel Diaz would have been up this summer in a normal uh, season. You're, you can project him coming up. And maybe Zimmerman is a, is a rotation piece now. And eventually there are going to be some other guys who – are going to filter up that, that stay down at that buoy site that are going to be ready. And I just think that it, it, it's going to push them a little closer now to being where they want to be. Uh, and that was a big achievement. If we, if they hadn't been able to see Keegan Aiken yet, it hadn't been able to see Dean Kramer. And for whatever reason, Mount Castle had struggled as I think some people in the organization worried about, that's why they didn't want to rush them up there. If that stuff had happened, then you could say, like, man, where is this club right now? Maybe they took a step backward. They're still spinning their wheels or forget 2021. But that didn't happen. And now it kind of makes you feel a little more optimistic about where they're headed, how close they are, and just how good they can be. I, and I also think they have the right people in place to do this. Um, Brandon Hyde, first-time manager, in his second season, he ends up taking on more than he probably could have ever imagined. And I think he handled it so well. And I think it's safe to say now that, that he's the right guy to guide this team through this period. 
and Michael Ice is doing everything that he said he was going to do, and he's doing it without any interference at all. He's the guy calling the shots. He's bringing his people. He's making the decisions. Uh, so I, I just feel like it, most fans have to feel more optimistic about where this club is than they have in quite a while, even 10 games below 500 having what tied for the fifth worst record. It's, there were still significant gains that should make them optimistic for the future. Yeah, if you look at just the outfield next year, for the first time in a long time, there's going to be really difficult decisions. And it's not going to be one of those decisions where someone wins a job by default. It's going to be a difficult decision where you may have to move a, a talented young player before opening day or in this offseason or maybe even DFA someone who in years gone by would have just been handed a spot. Right, and I think the days of seeing infielders forced to play the outfield, and in some cases three in, infielders playing the outfield in the starting lineup, I think those days are gone. It's nice to have the super utility guy that could fill in if you have a lot of late substitutions or some emergency. But I feel like now they are really set, and there are going to be tough decisions, and they're good ones, but they're still difficult. We even mentioned Ryan McKenna who's on the 40 and at some point is expected to be able to come up. And Cedric Mullins, what he was able to do now, he looks like if he isn't an everyday player, he's at least certainly a guy who should stick in the majors and back up at all three spots in the outfield. But maybe he is at least a part-time center fielder. They seem comfortable with Austin Hayes in the corners. He expressed his preference to play center, but he'll play anywhere at this point, keep him healthy. What a bonus to have a guy that athletic in left field, for example, and Santander and right. And that's why Mancini may have to play a lot of first base. And it also makes you wonder if Renato Nunez is a non-tender candidate or certainly a trade ship and try and move him because he's primarily a DH and you really want to free up that spot now for the excess within the outfield. So yeah, they are suddenly really deep at that position and it doesn't seem that long ago that the big complaint was they have some intriguing pitching prospects at the lower levels of the minors, but they're really hurting for position players. Now, all of a sudden, they seem loaded in the outfield. And oh, by the way, I think there's a first-round pick from this year who happens to be a right fielder who could move quickly, even though he didn't get to uh, play in the minors this year and wasn't uh, in uh, the player pool, but will be in the fall instructional league. So, you know, let's not forget that as well. So they're suddenly really deep at that position. On the pitching front, the starting rotation, you've got six candidates you have to figure right now for five rotation spots next year. And Alex Cobb had a solid season overall, you know, seven innings and one row baseball to close things out. John Means, you talked about it, began to, to look like himself. How encouraged should everybody be by the amount of pitching death that you have, especially coming into 2020 where – there were a lot of rotation spots up for grabs and everyone was like outside of John Means and Alex Cobb, like who's going to be in this starting rotation? Yeah. It wasn't that long ago that we were saying, gee, Thomas Eshelman, Chandler Shepard, Ty Block. We were throwing names like that as guys who were possibilities for the back end of the rotation. And obviously Cole Stewart who ended up going on the COVID IL and has been activated since then. Uh, but yeah, I think now all of a sudden you can kind of project, at least six starters. And of course, anybody in the organization in baseball will tell you, hey, six starters for five spots, great. You need about five more because you never have enough starting pitching. But there are, there's another wave behind those guys as, as well uh, that are going to be working their way up. And plus, it wouldn't surprise any of us if Elias went ahead and signed another veteran type, maybe minor league deal, spring invite, whether that's January, February, early March. It's what the Orioles do. That's how LeBlanc and Malone showed up, and in past years, certainly other guys. So I would think that he may be seeking somebody else like that to provide a little more depth, 
some competition back into the rotation because most likely there's still going to be some growing pains with a guy like Aiken or, or, or Kramer or Zimmerman. I mean, you, you know, they're still, they're, they're still getting their feet wet in the major league level. While we're really encouraged by what we saw, it's hard to say, okay, these guys are now established and you, you know, every five days and they can win you 15 to 18 games and this, that, who knows at this point. So you, you need more pitching, but it is encouraging that they have that many guys now. And yeah, right now, I think you kind of look at including Jorge Lopez, they're six for five. And then somebody maybe if, if that's who you stick with, somebody ends up being kind of that long relief swingman type. And maybe you do have less of a need for a Eshelman type. Now he may end up making the club as well, just because he's valuable as an emergency guy, but you might have less of a need for that veteran type guy because you're going to have someone, it could be Lopez, it could be Zimmerman, whoever, who fills that role, but they're still going to look for more pitching for sure. Rock, when you look at the infield right now, Take Nunez out of it, because I think he's kind of in his own category. But if you look at Alberto and you look at Rio Ruiz, and we'll throw in the catchers, and I guess we should take Iglesias out of there as well, given his production and his um, option season coming up, assuming the Orioles pick that up. You have a bunch of guys around the same age who had similar roller coaster type seasons. There's really no one knocking on the door at third and second. Is it likely we'll see at least Rio – and Alberto back for at least one more season. Uh, how do you see uh, Michael Elias playing the infield next year? Yeah, and I think at least for now, you have to still pencil in Alberto at second and Ruiz at third. But at the same time, I kind of wonder if Elias is going to say, okay, do we need to do something, let's say, about third base? Because Ruiz, again, very up and down. The final numbers certainly don't wow you. And for some reason, you fell in this really weird fielding slump with his throws we went from talking earlier when he was sidelined to how much they missed him at third base the consistency and the huge drop off when he wasn't there to ask him what's wrong with Rio like every throw across the diamond is off the mark it's bouncing he's having trouble throwing on the run even when he planted his feet so he really slumped just overall there were just those spurts where especially early on in the season when it's like wow this guy he is an everyday player and he's going to become established and then fell off again did the Orioles try again next season to see whether it clicks for him and just keep working with them. Uh, and you're right, right? At this point, there isn't some big-time third-base prospect that he's blocking. So I kind of wonder if maybe they kind of check to see some availability of an infielder like that who could maybe play some third or play some second or third, whatever, to at least challenge Ruiz rather than just hand him that job. Because, uh, again, just when you thought that maybe he was going to be the guy for sure moving forward – there were more questions again, but that's also the case. Alberta really dropped off behind the plate. Maybe they're fine with Severino and Cisco while they wait for Rutschman, who will not be, I don't think, on the opening day roster. But look what happened. The, the combined numbers with those guys, especially Severino, who just, you know, horrible September. I don't even think he had an RBI in the final. He did month. not. Yeah, you know, so no home runs, no RBIs, and was, you know, under 200, I think. It just, it just fell apart for him, but is that still okay? Is that good enough till Rutschman's ready? They're going to have to decide that as well. Uh, so, you know, it seemed like a lot of the positions are set, but there are a couple areas where you kind of wonder if, if they'll try to upgrade. Uh, and, you know, with catcher, with Severino's out of options. So he's, you can't send him down. So, you know, you're, he's, he's going to be the guy. Assume somebody would claim him if you tried to put him on waivers like the Orioles did. Uh, he's just a puzzle to me because he was supposed to be a good catch and throw guy. And right now he just looks like a good throw guy. He was having a lot of trouble behind the plate. 
so, you know, and again with Ruiz, I think that, you know, you kind of look to see, is there an upgrade? And if not, you just keep working with the guy. And Alberto, there are things you like about him, but I don't know if you can just hand him a job and say, you're everyday second baseman again. For now, yes. But at the same time, you're kind of looking at some of the moves they've made and what they've done in the draft recently, and they're probably waiting. Okay, let's try and get some of these guys up through the system to get them beaten on the door that could be uh, better options for them. My question, Rocky, is what happens to Cesar Valdez? This is a guy that he went seven years between major league appearances. And then he went more than three years between major league appearances. He comes up to the Orioles. He can do pretty much anything. He had two different stints where he had three inning outings. He throws his change up over 80% of the time, and nobody can seem to hit him. You obviously anticipate Hunter Harvey is going to have a key back-end bullpen role for your team next year. But Cesar Valdez, what happens to him? Yeah, he could have been throwing his fastball half of that time and it looked like a changeup. I'm not even sure. He's like a stat cast nightmare like Eshelman where every, every pitch was like, um, changeup with a question mark. I've never seen stat cast with a question mark, but that's kind of like, ah, uh, I think it's a changeup. Don't know. Dead fish. Is that actually a pitch now? Valdez uh, is out of options, but I don't think it matters because absolutely this is the guy that you, you certainly bring to camp and you project him in the bullpen just because he's such a valuable do everything guy and somebody that because he doesn't really put a lot of strain on his arm, he can give you multiple innings and be available the next day. Like why would you still carry him? He can be a guy in long relief. If you need, you know, I, we started gets knocked out early. Valdez maybe can give you four innings and they'll keep stretching him out in spring training, or he's a high leverage guy in the later innings. I know it's crazy. I don't know if you designate him. He's definitely our closer, but it's a guy that they clearly trusted to close games. He ended up with three saves. I mean, who would have thought Cesar Valdez was going to pitch at all this year, let alone have three saves. It's just so 2020. Uh, so I don't see why you would not project him if you're Elias, if you're Hyde as part of your bullpen in 2021, because I don't think it's flukish that this guy was able to, to, you know, keep the barrel off the ball when he was pitching and, and he was able to, if nothing else, eat innings, but he wasn't just a guy like TJ McFarland back in the day when Buck loved him because he ate innings. But if you give up five, six, seven runs, eh, you're saving the bullpen, but it's still doing some damage. This guy was just legit. So that definitely one of the better stories, if not the best story for the Orioles in 2020, just because it was so much fun to see this guy and to consider that he wasn't even in spring training. Like we saw him pitch a few times because they brought him over from, minor league camp so that when they gave him the invite for the summer training camp we were a little surprised like really you were that impressed with him and then he didn't make the opening day roster though I know Doug Roquel loved him and I thought he had a shot at least 50-50 that he'd make it and he didn't and I think there was some disappointment then he comes up and I just don't see why you wouldn't have him in your bullpen next season he's just, he's just too valuable and you don't need him in the rotation and at this point Hyde doesn't want him in the rotation he wants him available in that pen whenever he's needed rock we know mike elias is going to be prudent and kind of operate on his timeline when it comes to bringing up prospects and listen it's been validated when you look at the early returns on mount castle and some of the young pitchers we saw this year but there is a reality to the timeline of service time, arbitration, and free agency. And Ryan Mountcastle's here. And other guys have gotten their feet wet a little bit. We know there are multiple waves of intriguing prospects coming um, and, and really a high-valued system right now. Ryan Mountcastle, as Michael I said a few days ago, is a major part of this organization. Does that 
kind of put a clock to everything that you can't ignore if you're in the front office right now that, yeah, we got to be careful. And also, obviously, there's no minor league season this year, but there's also a reality to this right now. He's here and he's hitting. Right. And I mean, there, there will never lay out the plan of when they plan to bring somebody up or, or say, hey, a lot of this has to do with service time, starting the clock, team control, keeping them farther from arbitration. But obviously that's a reality, and especially for a team, again, that is, does not have deep pockets. They have to consider how they can go ahead and, and save some money and keep up from having to pay big at arbitration and having being able to hold on to a guy longer before he reaches free agency. All those things are consideration, but it's not the sole reason that you keep a guy back. I mean, in Mountcastle's case, he absolutely needed more time to work on the plate discipline. What did he end up drawing? At last time I checked, he had 10 walks. He had 24 all of last summer at Norfolk, and he had 10 walks with the Orioles. So, you know, he was with 11 walks. 11, 11 walks. There you go. So he obviously benefited. He said that from working on, you know, that approach to, you know, recognizing pitches better, being patient, but not losing his aggressiveness, which he clearly didn't. He's a much better hitter than we realize. He was not a guy just swinging from his heels, trying to pull everything to left field. I mean, how many times do you see him wait on a breaking ball or off speed pitch and take it to right field and on three, two counts. And, and I think, and his work at left field, he was a lot smoother than some other people I saw in left field this year. I'm not going to name names, but he had much better instincts than some other guys. So I think all of that is because of, of, of that work at Bowie that really benefited him. Uh, but it also worked out financially for the Orioles. It was the perfect scenario. And I think that you'll continue to see that. I think the money part has to always be a consideration, but also they do not want to, you know, there were different ways you could approach a rebuild. We said this when it started, you just throw all these prospects into the pool, not the 60 man pool, but the, you know, hypothetically that the, the, the pool and just say, you know, sink or swim and play the kids and fans will love that and whatever and learn at the highest level. Or do you slow things down, go step-by-step step in the development and make certain that when you do bring them up, you try and keep them off that shuttle. And that's the approach they've taken. They're not going to rush anybody. I'm sure, you know, there's always that thought of, Hey, Rutschman, he's advanced. He's the first overall pick. Let's just bring him up there and put him behind the plate and whatever. But no, they're going to go ahead. He was supposed to be at Frederick this year. Then he was going to go up to Bowie. And it's going to be a process. Now, I don't know where you start him next year, but they're not going to just you know, toss him into major league games this soon. And again, there's also the control thing. So I think you're going to see what Diaz are doing it and some other guys as well. It's going to be a step-by-step process that benefits the player and the team on the field, but also benefits them when it comes to spending. The last one for me, Rock, and piggybacking off of that, for people that were at the alternate site, like Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, Adley Rutschman, who in a normal year would have been probably playing in Frederick in A-ball because they were at that alternate site and because you, they got working at the alternate site, but they didn't have a full minor league season like they typically would have had. Are those players that you see starting at Bowie and maybe Diaz starting at Norfolk next year, considering that, you're trying to keep these guys' development tracks in line while also making sure you don't get too far ahead of yourself. Do you see that work as at Bowie being enough to get them up a level starting next year? I think that's one of the more interesting questions because, and Elias was asked about that in this season ender on Saturday. It was like, do you still project that these guys start out where they were supposed to and, you know, this summer 
without the minor league season next year, or does that work a buoy count as, hey, that's like a, the minor league season. So now we can bump these guys up a level. And real, basically his answer was, I think it just depends on the individual. There are a lot of factors. I think D.L. Hall was supposed to be in Bowie. I think he's in Bowie. I think Diaz was supposed to be in Norfolk. He's in Norfolk. But I don't know what happens to a Rutschman, for example. Is he still Frederick? Or do they look at, look, a year at that camp, and I assume he's going to be in the fall instructional league. We haven't seen a roster. That's good enough. And as a college guy and with his skill set and how mature he is, that's good enough to vote him at Bowie. I think maybe a guy like that you could project, but then I think there are others that they'll just go to the level they were supposed to be at this past season. Maybe they don't stay there as long, but I think you start them out there. I really think it depends on the player, uh, whether they came out of college or high school, how mature, what they were able to accomplish at Bowie. But it is one of the more interesting things because it, it, with no minor league season, everything seems up in the air. And again, you can't replicate games at Bowie, but I think for some guys, it was enough work done that that's probably good enough. And I'm just going to use Rutschman again. If he's catching every day there and catching double A AA and triple A guys and getting those at-bats and getting that instruction, that's probably good enough to move him out of, of high A ball. But somebody like D.L. Hall, his age, and not being able to actually pitch in real minor league games, maybe you say, okay, let's st start at Bowie again with him. Grayson Rodriguez, that's a fence guy. That could be high A ball. Or that could be double A. That's one of the guys that they have to make that decision on. Uh, and by the way, we're saying Frederick, and we don't even know if there's going to be a Frederick team next year. But whoever's high A, and we hope it's Frederick, but uh, whoever's high A. But, yeah, I think it's just going to depend on the individual. A lot of unknowns, but really an intriguing season and a lot more uh, to write about in the months ahead. Best place to do that is MassInSports.com and Rockabaco. Rock, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, you know, it was from afar in many ways, but always enjoyed covering this season with you. Thank you. Hey, same here. Thanks, guys. That's Rockabaco and Brandon Hyde before that. It's going to be a really interesting offseason. And I think big picture, Jeff, it, it, there's no question to me the needle was moved this year and moved under really tough circumstances. Yeah, I think when you finish 25 and 35, there were places that said you were going to win 10 games. And you kind of showed all of them that, you know, that was not true. And we're not going to really, I think, kind of know how productive this year was until we get into 2021, because there's such a big difference between 60 games and 162 games. And there, there's a lot of, you know, even if you take that part out of it, I mean, look at the positive development stories. I mean, Ryan Mountcastle coming up in the major leagues and raking one, he was up there. Cesar Valdez getting an opportunity and becoming a key part of the bullpen. You probably couldn't have predicted that one. Um, you, you, there was a lot of things that you weren't able to predict this year. Pat Vileka being at the very top of the, the team lead in games played. And then also factor in some of the, the positive development stories for, for pitchers that you had with Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken coming up. Jose Iglesias putting on a really good year, being right up there for most valuable Oriole. And then, of course, Anthony Santander, who got that award and through the first third of the season was one of the best players in all of baseball. So there's a lot to be pleased with. I think we'll figure out a little bit more what it all means in 2021. But for, for what 2020 was, I think you have to be pretty excited. And it was a good draft year for you. You added some prospects at the deadline. So you've found some ways to sustain your, your, yourself going forward. And hopefully that will allow you to have some success uh, down the road.
And, you know, it's going to be interesting times ahead. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. And I hope people, uh, if they're missing baseball, as I always do this time of year, if their season's over and, uh, and if you want more than just the postseason that's on, and it, boy, is it on as far as a volume of games and almost a March Madness type feel to it, uh, go back and listen to our old episodes of Inside the Yard. As we say in the business, a little inside baseball talk here, they're evergreens. I mean, the interview with Sigma Dell, with Matt Blood, with Brandon Hyde, with Mike Elias, getting to know people like Hunter Harvey and Ryan Mountcastle and Dean Kramer, and go back and listen to Orioles Magic, the podcast, and talking about great moments uh, with great players in Orioles history. It's a lot of fun. You know, we started this venture uh, during some really tough times uh, during the pandemic and really uncertain about baseball in 2020. But Jeff, I really enjoy this experience with you and our great team here. And I really think the content we came up with, uh, thanks to our digital team, Tyler Hofberger, uh, Kara Wagner, Mike Stoshnik, who produced every episode of this and Orioles Magic, the podcast, now going back six months, basically. And uh, of course, the help from Orioles PR. Uh, it was really a fun experience on, on several different levels. It was. I mean, you, when we're kind of going back and waiting to see if we're going to be able to play baseball this year, some of the best content that you can talk about is games that were previously played because there's a lot of a rich history with this team. And when you can go back and talk to Scotty McGregor about pitching in the 1983 World Series, and he's talking to you about it while he's watching it in real time and just watching himself dominate. That's got to be a, a whole another level of awesome. And then doing the uh, definitive Jim Palmer interview, which was so much fun, and talking to Rick Sutcliffe about pitching the first game ever at Camden Yards and Eddie Murray about his great career and Boog Powell about playing that 1970 World Series with the likes of you know, Brooks Robinson, where he, you know, the human vacuum cleaner. And I mean, everybody knew how good he was in Baltimore, but how great he became on a national stage. And, you know, being able to revisit some of those great memories in Orioles history, and then some of the more recent ones as well. Like we had our interview with J.J. Hardy. That was a ton of fun, too. Um, between all of the content that we had where we eclipse Orioles history and then going into to modern day and talking about where this team is going and hopefully they will get to the point that some of those other great Orioles teams got to. Um, it, it was so much fun. It was great to do it with you and to, to tap into your rich knowledge of Orioles history. It seemed like every single game that took place in the nineties, we would talk about it beforehand. You're like, Oh, I was there. I was there. I remember, <laughs> I remember being there. I had this happen too. I was there, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right, well, of course you were there. Of course you were there. You were literally at every single one of these games and your, and your memories and recalls of it uh, was really impressive. And then also to talk about it with some, talk about this, this baseball season, as weird as it was in its truncated last time I'm using last that time. form. That's it. We're done. Done. To be able to talk about it and go through it and, and hear about the stories of some of these players and uh, letting everybody get to know who they are, not only as pitchers or position players, but as people too, I think hopefully will allow people to, to feel a better connection with them. So that way, when there are fans at the ballpark, again, they'll be able to enjoy watching these players even more. Yeah. I'm really proud of the content we came up with the creativity, uh, just trying uh, to do something different uh, in a time where I felt like we both needed to do something uh, was really worthwhile. And I thought it was really good content. And above all, I want to thank our audience for listening and spreading the word about uh, these podcasts and obviously from our vantage point on television and radio over the last several 
months, Jeff, that was the way the fans could connect. It's the only way this year they could connect. And we just hope and pray that, again, uh, we'll be connected to them in person uh, in the months and, and seasons ahead. And uh, we very much look forward to that day. Overall, I, I can personally say it was great working with you this season, Jeff. As I've said on the radio the other day, I think we've spoken every day together, except for yesterday, since like the early stages of March and spring training, middle March or whatever it was. And uh, it was really fun doing it with you. And I look forward to many more uh, broadcasts ahead with you and, and with the Orioles. And then uh, also just from the vantage point of kind of getting to the other side of this season, there were so many challenges. Uh, no one wants to hear our woe is me stories because they really don't exist. The Orioles organization went above and beyond and made us really comfortable at work. And uh, it was unique. It was kind of fascinating in its own way. It's something you want to rem remember forever. It's also something you might want to forget forever. So, but it, it, I thought it was very rewarding and I'm just really proud of the organization and I'm proud of baseball getting the other side and pulling this off. There were some times where I think you were wondering. I mean, obviously for us, they did a really good job. And I think everyone was really locked into the protocols that you had to follow. But even so, when you, you look at what happened to the Marlins and when you look at what happened to the Cardinals and Rob Manfred comes out at that point and, you know, says what he has to say, you're just like, are we going to, is baseball going to find a way through it? And they did. And I, I think you have to give a lot of credit to, to everybody. You know, for our side, they did a tremendous job. And I, and I also, you know, especially you got to thank Brian Ebel and his staff. I thought Brandon and I really summed it up well in the episode, which is like the normal hours for a major league training staff are mind boggling to begin with. And then you want to throw a pandemic in there too. So uh, the, the biggest credit goes to them. And I, and I think I said it on the radio the other day as, as we were wrapping things up. Um, 2020 has been a challenging year for a lot of people. We hope it is kinder to everyone in 2021, but especially to those guys because their work was phenomenal in keeping the players, staff, and us safe throughout it all. So on that note, we will say goodbye for now. Obviously, uh, keep checking uh, for our next episode of Inside the Yard or Orioles Magic, the podcast, uh, and follow all the Orioles uh, digital uh, accounts and keep checking us on Twitter and we'll be able to have updates in the coming uh, weeks and months ahead. But it was a great ride, and we'll have much more to come uh, across all of these uh, different outlets in, in the days and weeks ahead. So for Jeff Arnold, I'm Brett Hollander, for our entire crew who worked tirelessly to make these podcasts go, thank you so much for being with us. Enjoy the baseball hot stove season, because we will be back. Thank you. Thank you.